You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Stephen said, my name is Eric Holloway. I am one of the teaching elders at Grace Brethren Church. Uh, Robbie Day, one of the, our other teaching elders, he was preached here a couple times during your uh, the Reformation or the Five Solas Conference, I think it's called. So I came from the same church he does. I'm, I've been preaching for about five years now. I'm married to Savannah, relatively new dad with the little boy who's been yelling the entire time so far. Um, I do ask that you guys would pray for me, um, be patient with me because I am a very fallible person. Um, and then we will dig into the Word of God. I'm preaching from Galatians 1, 6 through 10, so I invite you all to turn with me to begin to read God's Word. And God's Word says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for this church, for the people that are here, for each family that's represented here. God, I pray that you would be with us as we seek to um, dive into your word, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word, and that you would be glorified and honored. God, I pray that... Uh, you would be with me as I seek to faithfully preach your word. It's in Christ's name I pray, and amen. All right, so at my church, I've been going through uh, doing a study on Galatians. And so this is just one of the, the sermons that I prepared for that series. Uh, we were doing VBS this past week, and as most of you know, VBS is very time-consuming. And so whenever I prepare or planned this night with David, I forgot that I was going to be doing VBS all week, and so this is a, an older sermon from that series, but still, the truth that is within it is still vitally important. Um, as we start to go through and understand just the, the struggle that Paul had with the church in Galatia, um, he had many reasons for writing this letter, uh, because shortly after Paul had set up the Galatian church, there were false teachers, which were known as Judaizers, entered in and started spreading lies about Paul, attacking him, and sharing a false and twisted version of the gospel. Uh, learning about what was going on, Paul urgently wrote this letter to, uh, to warn and chastise the church, and as well as point them back to the one true gospel. These false teachers were telling the people that they had to be circumcised in order to be true Christians, that if they weren't circumcised, they were not good enough, that they had to do more. Not only this, they were also attacking Paul's authority as an apostle, um, claiming that he was a man-pleaser, a second-rate apostle, that he didn't really know Christ, 
that he came afterwards, and that he would also change his message depending on the people he was talking to. And he claimed that whenever he was talking to the Jews, he claimed that they had to be circumcised, but whenever he was talking to the Gentiles, he would say that they didn't have to be. And as we will see that as we go through Paul's defense, um, as we go through his chastisement, um, and we're talking about how he's calling out these deceivers, these Judaizers, we'll see this is something that Paul took very, very seriously, this, this idea of the exclusivity, the exclusivity, I cannot pronounce that word, of the gospel. See, as, the, as believers, the gospel is the very foundation of our faith. There's nothing that is more important than the gospel in our lives. It is the good news that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God has perfectly accomplished the salvation of his people. It is the gospel that saves us. It's the only thing that reconciles fallen humanity to the holy God of Scripture. It is the only way of salvation. That outside of Christ, that humanity is without hope. The gospel is not one of many ways to God, as many people like to say today, but it is exclusive. The only true path to reconciliation with God. And Paul is defending this truth here today. In fact, Paul spent his life fighting to uphold this doctrine from many different worldviews. And here we see Paul fighting against the legalism that the Judaizers were, see- were selling to the Galatian church. Mixing the gospel of grace with the false gospel of works. They were teaching the believers in Galatia that they were justified by faith plus works. That they had to do more. Putting them under the yoke of slavery to the law. To unbelievers, they were saying that you must keep the law if you want to be saved. And to believers, they were saying that you must keep the law if you want to be sanctified. You must earn salvation. You must keep your salvation by keeping the law. They were taking the gospel of grace and distorting it into a false gospel of works. And today, the gospel is still under attack from all the same old heresies that Paul fought against uh, back then. We see people, even professing believers, attempting to soften the gospel in an effort to make it more appealing. We see lies from false teachers like Joyce Myers who claimed on believers that God is not angry with you. Or from Joel Osteen that Christians are to live our best lives now. We see people mixing grace and works, teaching that it's up to you to accept salvation, that God can't save you unless you're willing to be saved, that you have to be good enough or you'll lose your salvation. All of this is a perversion of the true gospel, attempting to rob God of his glory and attempting to steer people away from the true message of salvation. And just like in Paul's time, people buy into these false gospels and many, many other lies. Seeing that the church was buying into this message that the deceivers were spreading, Paul could not keep quiet. He had to speak. He had to respond. He had to point the church back to the truth, that there is only one way of salvation, and it isn't by being a good person, it isn't by keeping the law, and it isn't so that we can be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The message of the true gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and, accord, and to the glory of God alone. And it is this gospel alone that is the only true message that has the power to save sinners. This is a dire situation that the, uh, the church in Galatia is in. They are selling the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for a lie. And Paul urgently writes this letter to address this problem. Let's look at the first two verses and and note the emotion in Paul's words. The urgency and, and truly the anger that he feels that he has poured into this letter. He writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in grace, in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Like I said, Paul is speaking very strongly throughout this letter. And he says that he is astonished at how quickly the Galatians have, have deserted the gospel. He's amazed. He's dumbfounded by, these, by the church. And uh, th- this letter, if you guys have gone through Galatians, or I'm sure... Uh, David has gone through it, or at least mentioned it, if you have. This letter was written shortly after Paul had established this church. He wasn't gone long before these heresies had snuck in. And he is just, he is astonished at how quickly they deserted the truth that he had brought to them. It's because as he was just there, and we see this in Acts 20, Paul says that he taught them the whole counsel of God. So what Paul's saying is here is just that I was just there, and I taught you the truth. I didn't shrink away from teaching you the whole counsel of God, and you are already turning your back on him. That's what he says there in verse 6, that they were deserting him. Not just the truth, but they were deserting him. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Paul is telling them that since they are deserting the true gospel, that in fact they are deserting God. The word translated here as deserting, it's a military term, and it literally means to desert your post and join the enemy. They were turning their backs on God, the one who saved them by grace, and choosing instead a different gospel of works. And this action... Basically, what they were saying is that what God did wasn't enough. That grace isn't good enough. This message of works that the Judaizers are bringing is better. I have to do something. However, this gospel that they were turning to is no real gospel at all. And that is why Paul says that there is not another one. Not that there is another gospel. What he's saying here in saying that it's a different gospel is that It's a false, it's a perverted, a twisted gospel. It is corrupt. And in that sense, sure, there are two gospels, a true, efficacious, saving gospel of grace and a false, non-saving, ineffective, false gospel of human accomplishment. In reality, there is really only one true gospel. Only one gospel that can save sinners, and it is the exclusive salvation found in Christ alone. We see this from Christ himself in John 14. He says, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Peter's words in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in 1 John 5, we see this, And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And in 1 Timothy Timothy also, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There are not two true Gospels, not many paths to God. There is only one. It is not found in the Book of Mormon or the Quran. It is not found in the Watchtower or any other form of enlightenment or self-improvement or by confessing our sins to a priest, but solely through Christ as described in Scripture. And is the message that Christ, the Son of God, both fully God and man, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a bloody and horrendous death on a cross in order to pay the penalty of death owed by sinners to reconcile them to the holy God of Scripture. And he rose again three days later as a promise that those who believed in him will also rise again on the last day. It is a truth that God accomplished, that it was God who accomplished all of this for his people on their behalf. To desert this gospel is to desert the truth of Christ and to turn your back on God himself. This is why this issue is so serious to Paul, why he is so angry in writing this letter, why he feels such strong emotions. That's why Paul boldly stands and fights for the truth of the gospel. As believers, we too are called to fight for this truth to defend the truth that Christ is the only path to reconciliation with God. John Calvin hits the nail directly on the head whenever he says, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. We must stand for the truth when the enemies of God attack his gospel. And I mean that Truthfully, enemies of God, because that's exactly what these people are. These false teachers, they're enemies of God because, as Paul says in the rest of verse 7, that there are some among you who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If turning your back on the true gospel of Christ is, turning your, is truly turning your back on him, then to seek to distort his truth and to try and pervert and twist uh, his message is to try and pervert and twist God as he has revealed himself in scripture. It's trying to form him into an idol of your own making. And this is exactly what the ones who are troubling the church in Galatia, the Judaizers, were doing. They were trying to put believers under the Mosaic law, requiring that they be circumcised in order to be true believers. They were twisting the truth from a gospel of grace to a gospel of works, a message of freedom and to a message of slavery, a gospel that leads to dependency on God to a gospel of self-reliance. 
a message that gives glory to God alone to a message that glorifies the self. This twisting of the truth is just like what Satan did in the Garden of Eden whenever he twisted the words of God to attempt to tempt Adam and Eve when he said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, any time that the gospel of God is distorted, it is a perversion of the divine doctrine of God into a doctrine of devils. This is, the, this true message that God has is the only true message. The only truth that we find is the truth of Scripture. And the message that is being spewed out by prosperity gospel preachers, the papacy, by even Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, though they seem close, they are twisting the message. Any message of salvation other than the salvation of grace, as we see in Scripture, is of their father, the devil. Think about it. Look at the Judaizers, for example. They were teaching that, that, that Christ, grace and faith are great and all, but they're not enough. They're not enough. They're inadequate. Human works are necessary in order to truly be righteous. This flies directly in the face of Christ. It flies directly in the face of him and his words as he was dying on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. What Christ did was enough. Christ is more than adequate. He is the perfect, sinless son of God. He is perfectly holy, divine, eternal, fully God and fully man. Yet you are go- that they were going to stand there. They, they dare to stand there and say that what he did was not good enough. That I, an unworthy sinner, that I have to add some form of works to what Christ did for it to be effective. That is a doctrine of Satan. That is a doctrine of devils. How dare anyone say that what Christ did was not good enough? The sad thing is, though, is that this is exactly what was happening in Galatia. And frankly, it's still happening today. They say that in order to be justified, in order to be sanctified, you must be obedient. And I know that, 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 that it can be dressed up into sound correct, but this is getting the cart before the horse. We do not earn salvation through our obedience, nor do we sanctify ourselves through our obedience. No, as believers, we obey because we were justified by God through Christ. And we continue to obey because we are being sanctified by God through the promised Holy Spirit. That is the biblical doctrine of grace. But still they say that is not good enough. To be right with God or in order to be a true Christian, you must be circumcised. You must keep the Ten Commandments. You must observe the holy days. Gentiles must become Jews. You must submit to all of the Mosaic law. They will say that you are saved by faith and baptism, or faith and speaking in tongues, or they will flat out deny the deity of Christ and or his exclusivity. The things that all of these have in common is that they are all saying that Christ died needlessly. And I'm jumping ahead a little uh, into... The, the further portions of Galatians here, but um, 
uh, Paul also says these to the exact same words. He says these uh, to the Galatians in uh, verses 16 through 21. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We are not saved, sanctified, or kept by the law or our own works or efforts nor by a set of rules, but by faith in Christ alone. Listen to this scene from Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And now listen to Paul's response. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They did not give the jailer a list of rules, a code of conduct, or point them to the law and say, you need to do X, Y, and Z. They simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. We see the same thing in Romans 10, where Paul says uh, in verses 5 through 13, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does, who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the freedom of the gospel of Christ. We are saved, sanctified, and kept by the power of God. Understand how freeing that is. 
how beautiful it is that we are not under the slavery of the law, having to keep ourselves good, worrying about making sure our good works outweigh our bad. Listen to James in James 2. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We are no longer under the Mosaic law, but we are under the law of liberty, the light yoke of Christ who lived perfectly, who kept the law perfectly for you. We are sinners. We are going to fail. We are going to slip. We're going to sin. But if you are a believer, rest in the promise of Christ. Rest in the truth that all, excuse me, that Christ accomplished for you was enough. Don't go to him in prayer fearing that you messed up too many times. Don't be afraid to confess your sins to your Father in heaven. Don't wonder if you're good enough to go to him when you fall because you aren't, but Christ was. As his children, you are clothed in the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And through Christ, you have been given access to the Father. Rest in Christ. This is what the reformers were fighting for, where the false teachers, where the Catholic Church was saying that faith And the reformers stood firm and held fast to the word of God and boldly proclaimed faith alone. They knew they were fighting for the truth, for the gospel, just as Paul did all those years ago. Listen to the boldness of Paul in this letter in verse 8. Listen to how serious he takes the defense of the truth and the severity of the accusation to those who seek to distort it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So in saying, let them be accursed, what Paul is saying is that if if anyone distorts the true, freeing, and gracious message of the gospel, let them be damned. That's literally what he's saying. That's how serious Paul is about this subject. He does not mince words. He does not beat around the bush, and he tells them exactly how it is. He says that it doesn't matter if it's a man, an apostle, or even an angel from heaven. If they proclaim a gospel different from the one true gospel that I told you that you were saved by, let him be anathema. That is the word here that's translated into let them be accursed. And I want you to understand the severity of this sentence that Paul is writing. This word anathema literally means to be devoted to destruction, consigned to hell, eternally condemned now. Look, straight up, what Paul is saying here is that if anyone preaches another gospel, let him go to hell. And that is hard. That's serious. That's not, it's something that naturally reconciles us because it is strong language. Here's the thing. We cannot sacrifice the truth, especially the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
in the name of so-called tolerance. Paul is concerned for these people's souls. He's concerned for the salvation of those, for his audience, for the ones he's writing to, to the, the ones that are listening to the false teachers. He tells them exactly how it is. Let them be damned before they take anyone else down with them. Martin Luther said this about uh, this verse. It says that Paul's zeal for the gospel becomes so fervent that it almost leads him to curse angels. I would rather that I, my brethren, yes, even the angels of heaven be condemned, consigned to hell, than that the gospel be overthrown. And listen to the words from, uh, of Jesus from Matthew. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. When it comes to the gospel, there is no room for neutrality. There is no room to be passive. Remember, in representing the gospel, we are representing the God who saved us. In allowing the gospel to be defaced, twisted, and perverted, it is to allow the same to be done to God. And that is why Paul uses such strong language, why he draws such a stark line in the sand, why he is so serious about this issue. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says about this passage, how can it be otherwise? If the gospel Paul preaches is true, then both the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of men are at stake. If men can be saved by works, then Christ has died in vain, and the cross is emptied of all meaning. If men are taught a false gospel, they are being led from the one thing that can save them and are being turned to destruction. Those who corrupt the one true gospel contribute to the damnation of lost souls who follow their message. And this is why it is so important that we strive to conform our beliefs to the word of God and not to seek to twist God's word to how we think it should be interpreted, to make it more palatable. This is serious. It's so serious that Paul repeats himself in verse 9. It says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. However, when I say it, he repeats himself here, he isn't referring to the previous verse, but is referring to when he was just there with them in person. We see this in Acts 20 where Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I told you before, and I'm telling you again, that there will be wolves among you. And if any man teaches you a false gospel, let him be accursed. Jesus, too, warns us of the false prophets in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There will be false prophets, so we must be discerning because they appear to be one of the sheep. They say the right words, they perform the right actions, but it's just enough to hide their fangs. They look safe, they sound safe, but they're deceiving. Jesus tells us that we will know them by their fruits, by their message, by their lives, and the people who follow them. However, in order to rightly discern the truth from the lie, is to intimately know the gospel. Um, there's a, Robbie has, from our church has mentioned this illustration a couple of times, but when bankers, when they're studying to, uh, to uh, be able to, to differentiate between a true bill and a, uh, a counterfeit, they don't study the myriad of methods and uh, signs of a false bill because it's constantly changing, uh, but instead they study the real thing. They study it until they know it so intimately that the moment something isn't right, they notice it. And that's how we should be. As believers, we should be so familiar with the word that that the moment that anything seems off, we notice it. We should be like the Bereans and test everything with Scripture to see if it lines up with the truth. We must study the Scripture so that when something is off, as I said, that when we come in contact with these wolves in sheep's clothing, we will instantly know that something is up and be able to avoid their traps. We must be on guard, but we must also be on the, on the offensive. Just as Paul is here now in our passage today, Paul has no problem calling out false teachers. For call, he has no problem calling them out for what they are. He points them out directly everyone in the Galatian church would be painfully aware of who he was talking about. In the same way, if we see someone leading the people astray with a false gospel, we should call them out. Calling, pointing to the scripture, showing the lies of their gospel for what it truly is with the truth. An example of this we see in a song by a, a Christian hip-hop artist named Shai Lin. In his song, False Teachers, he uses scripture to define the truth and to point out these deceivers. In the song, he calls out by name Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Fred Price, Kenneth Copeland, Robert Tilton, Eddie Long, Juanita Bynum, and Paul Crouch specifically. And he's right to do this. Each of these people, among others, are teaching a false gospel that cannot save anyone. But it's what they want to hear. It's sweet. It draws in a crowd. But it's drawing them straight to damnation. They use this message as a tool to line their own pockets. And Paul says that if they are not preaching the only true gospel of Christ, then let them be accursed. So, In closing, as believers, I want to encourage you, one, to to know the word, to read the word, to study the word so that you too will know the difference between what is true and what is false, to know what is a lie, because we will come in contact with many people trying to deceive us, trying to twist the word of God in order to their own liking. But also, I want to encourage you, 
as you're studying the word, know that as a believer, as one who, who believes in Christ, that every single promise that is made in here to his people, it is made to you. That we do not have to worry about our, our good works measuring up against our bad, but that Christ, what he did was enough. That he perfectly accomplished all that was necessary to save his people. And that we can rest in that promise. That we can rest in the promise that since he rose on the last day, that if you believe in him, you too will rise on that last day. I thank you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray that that you are honored and that you are glorified tonight. God, I pray that in spite of my, my weakness, in spite of my failings, Lord, that your word was proclaimed faithfully, that your people were encouraged, edified. God, I pray that we would fall more in love with you. I pray that we would rest in you alone. I thank you for the people here. I thank you for their love for you. I pray that you would bless them. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.